Today we're going to look at our third, Jesus' third parable. Uh, let me give you a, just a paraphrase of that parable. It, is, it, go, it starts like this. There's a farmer, and he has um, a field, and he, and he throws some seeds into that field, and then he goes to sleep. And when he, um, while he's sleeping, an enemy comes and plants weeds in the field. So you know this is the parable of the weeds. And, and while he's sleeping, the weeds are planted, and then as they grow up, the wheat and the weeds, the servants of that farmer say, what's up with that? Why are there weeds? What did you do? I thought you planted good seed. And he says, an enemy did it. And so the servants say, do you want us to pull them out, pull out the weeds? And he says, no, don't pull them out, because if you do, you might pull out the weed along with it. Instead, let them grow together until the harvest, and then when the harvest comes, we'll pull it all, and then we'll separate them. We'll put the wheat on one side, the weeds on the other. We'll throw the wheat in the fire. I mean, the weeds in the fire, and we'll throw the wheat in the barn. The end. And that's the parable in a nutshell. And before we get into it, I want to just tell you what I think is the thrust, the thesis, the main point, the big idea of the whole parable. On the outset, I want to say, here, here's the big idea. And then I want to unpack each of those line by line, kind of exegete the text. So here's the big idea, I think. I think it's found in verse 30. Where Jesus says, let both grow together until the harvest. So the big idea is this. Evil and good are going to grow right next to each other all throughout this kingdom until the harvest. And if you look at the world, how many of you would agree that's true? Evil and good right there next to each other. You know, Justin, Dan, right ne- sitting right next to each other right now. You know what I mean? Evil and good are growing right into the kingdom until the harvest. So that's the thrust, the big idea of this parable. So now what I want to do is exegete the text. I want to go line by line, verse by verse, kind of pull out some words, get fancy and pull some Greek out, and look at what's really happening here. Then on the back end of it, I want to ask this question. What are we supposed to do with that, really? If this parable is essentially about good and evil are going to grow right next to each other until the last days, then what do we do with that? What What does Jesus want us to hear? How do we respond? So, let's do it line by line. You ready? Someone say, amen. All right. So the first first, um, verse is this. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, and so, again, this parable is about the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, same thing as we covered last week. Now, last week we talked about the kingdom of God quite a bit. Raise your hand if you were a little confused by any of it. No? No one here? Okay, good. Good. Awesome. Because it was a lot. It was a heavy, it was a heavy mess. And tonight we're gonna have to spend a little more time on the kingdom of God because you can't just unpack the kingdom of God in 20 minutes. It's gonna we're gonna have to spend probably the rest of this series talking about what the kingdom of God is because most of all of Jesus' parables are about this thing called the kingdom of God. His teaching is about the kingdom of God, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, are all about how to live in that kingdom. And then some of, his, some of his healings, same thing. He heals, he goes, I'm healing so that you'll know the kingdom of God is with you. The kingdom of God is near you. The kingdom of God is at hand. So we have to understand what the kingdom of God is. Yet it's kind of confusing, isn't it? N.T. Wright, a well-known, famous scholar, says this with his British-English accent. One of the extraordinary things about contemporary Christianity is that though the kingdom of God is the major theme of the Gospels, and the teachings of Jesus, many Christians only have a very sketchy idea of what it's really all about. Even though this is the main thrust and theme of everything that Jesus is talking about, just pick up your Bible this weekend, tomorrow on Sunday, you got pajama day, just read the book of Mark. 
probably take you two hours if you're a slow reader to read through the book of Mark. Note how many times Jesus talks about this thing called the kingdom of God. And yet, we don't really talk about it very much, do we? We don't think about the kingdom of God. We don't talk about the kingdom of God. We don't understand what the kingdom of God is. And one of the main reasons why is because, as I mentioned last week, we probably get it confused with heaven. We think the kingdom of God is essentially heaven. And so the way we think you know, the universe rolls out is we live our life here on this earth. That's step one. And then step two, we live a new life up in heaven. Sweet by and by. And what happens is when we take, when we take the kingdom of God and we, tell, and we say that it means heaven, we essentially gut the gospel for most of what it's all about, to be honest with you. Because you see, the gospel is not primarily about heaven. It's not. Let me put it this way. The good news is not primarily about what's going to happen to you when you die. Yes, that's good news, but is it really good news? Hey, I got some good news for you. When you die, (laughs) wait a minute, (laughs) where's the good news? You get to go to heaven. The gospel primarily is about what's happening now, what's happening here. It is God with us. And God is actually working in space, time, history, here and now. And you get to walk with God. You get to be with God. And you get to have a full, the fullest life now. Not you get to go to heaven one of these days. That's the, yeah, that's good news, but not really. The real good news is you get God now. You get an, 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 a relationship with God. It's no longer broken. It's, it's, it's full. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a heaven, okay? I know sometimes when I say, you know, it's not about heaven, it's about the kingdom, we say, oh, so he doesn't believe in heaven. No, no, no. There is a heaven. Your, your loved ones, if they were Christians, when they died, they're in heaven, okay? Ethel and Ethel and Uncle Bill, they're in heaven, okay? Jesus is in heaven right now, sitting at the right hand of God Almighty. I believe that there is a heaven, and we will one day enter into heaven. But we have to understand that the kingdom of God and heaven are distinct. They're different things, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is here. He says that a lot, actually. In fact, in Matthew 12, he says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. In one passage, he says, the kingdom of God is in your hearts. One of the passages says, the kingdom of God is near. Prepare the way, right? Prepare. The kingdom is, is here. And then while we're on this earth, he gives us things to do in regards to the kingdom. Two that I can think of specifically is he tells us to pray. Pray that, that your kingdom would come on earth. Remember that in the Lord's Prayer? And then he tells us to seek. So pray and seek first for his kingdom and his righteousness. Here's an interesting question. Why would Jesus tell us to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth if God has no intention of bringing his kingdom on earth, if it's really just heaven? Or why would he say seek first his kingdom if his kingdom is really heaven? How do you seek first heaven without putting a gun to your head? You know, how do you do that? So, so, So we believe literally, like most scholars who take the Bible literally, We believe that there is a literal kingdom, and it's here on this earth, and we're supposed to seek it now. C.S. Lewis said it like this, the kingdom of God is to be be realized here in this world, and it will be. It will be. We will experience this thing called the kingdom of God. So God's got a plan and a purpose for earth, but he's also got an eternal state called heaven, and we'll talk about that some other day, yes, we by and by. Now, I know this is a lot, and it's heavy, and I don't really even want to talk about Tay Truth, because it's not fun. It's not like, hey, have your best life now. Don't worry. Be happy. You know, it's not, it's not the best kind of, you know, it's not the kind of message that's going to draw millions of people. <laughs> it's deep. It's heavy. It's theology. And last week when I talked about the kingdom of God, I really tried to stay clear of eschatology. What is eschatology? Uh, 
Eschaton means the end of time, the end of the world as we know it. Eschaton is the end. And so eschatology is the study of the end times. And we love that stuff, don't we? But I don't. I don't like studying the end times because people get their panties in a knot and people get all upset and talk about locusts and helicopters and, you know, and the premillennium and the postmillennium and we just get all, you know, theologically bent out of shape. But I realized this week as I was looking at more of the parables that you can't not talk about the end times if you're going to talk about the kingdom of God because it's connected. And so in one minute, I want to try to give you a whole semester of theology um, of end times, okay? One minute. Let's see if I can do it. So, so in the Old Testament, God promises us a kingdom over and over again. He's promising us the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming, the king is coming, the king is coming. coming. He says it in, for Abraham. He, then he says it to David. And one of these days, David, one of your descendants will sit on that throne forever. All the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they're all about the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming. And then Jesus comes, right? And Jesus is the Messiah, and he presents himself as the king. He rides in on a donkey, and they say, the king is here. Hallelujah. Hosanna, Hosanna. But unfortunately, the only crown that he wears is a crown of thorns, which leads to a cross, which leads to a death, which leads essentially to him resurrecting and disappearing. And so the question that we ask ourselves then is, what happened to the kingdom? He said the kingdom was here. He said the kingdom was near. He said that you are parts of your salt and light in my kingdom. Where's the kingdom? And since, like I said, if you're a conservative scholar, you believe the Bible is literal, you believe that God fulfilled all of his prophecies literally, Jesus came literally, just like Daniel said he would. Jesus came and died on a cross literally, just like Isaiah said he would. And so then this kingdom where there's a, there's a king who reigns forever and ever and ever, lion laying down with the lamb, no more war, no more tears, that's got to be real. When is it coming? And what we didn't know then, but we know now, is that Jesus is coming again, right? So we thought, the early Jewish contemporaries of Jesus thought, here's the Messiah, here's the kingdom, yay, we're here. But then he left, and he said, don't worry, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. So when I come, oh, when you come back, then you'll establish your kingdom. Okay. All right, so, and then, if you want to get into eschatology, what happens at that point, when Jesus comes back, that's where all the argument is. Is Jesus coming back before the millennium, after the millennium, before the rapture, after the rapture? Everyone argues about that. And then there will be a war called Armageddon. We'll destroy the devil and throw his witness, whatever, you know, into the pit. And then we'll all go to the eternal state in heaven. Was that one minute? That was almost one minute. Maybe it was two. So that's the big picture. There's an Old Testament promise of a kingdom. Jesus comes, says the kingdom is here, but we don't see it. So now he's saying when he comes, then he's going to prepare it. And then after preparing it for a time, we're all going to go to heaven and live in an eternal state after a judgment and after a war, which we love to make movies about, right? We are Armageddon, the apocalyptus. But what, where does it leave us now? Well, now we are in this thing called the church age. Theologians call it the parenthetical, the parentheses. We thought that the kingdom was coming when Jesus came, but he gives us this big gap when I come again. And so we live in the gap. And we call that the church age, or also the age of grace, which I like that. Amen? Who likes the age of grace? We live in this age of grace. And here's where it would be helpful if we all understand this. We believe that Jesus inaugurated or started the kingdom when he came, but now it's growing, just like the seed last week, into the, plant, into the ground. It's growing by itself. The kingdom is growing until it reaches its full potential where Jesus will come down and assume the, his rightful place as king. 
But right now, we have a place on this earth, and that is to pray that his kingdom comes, to pray that to seek his kingdom first, and a lot of other Matthew 5, 6, and 7 living in which this is how you be salt and light and live in this world we're trying to bring about the kingdom. That's all I got. I'm done. We can move away from this theology stuff, okay? Raise your hand if you're confused. Or, if you, or, or even have a question. I want to have a dialogue. Is, did, did, I, did, I, did, I, did I explain it well? Do you feel like you got it? Okay. It's big, heavy stuff. Like I said, I don't want to cover all that in church, maybe in a Bible study, but I needed to in order to get back to the parable. So now we can go back to the parable, okay? Parable of the weeds. Whew. No more theological Armageddons. All right, verse 24. Why did I say all that? Because Jesus is telling a parable about the kingdom of God, and we have to understand what that is. Verse 24, and here's what it looks like. The kingdom of God can be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Just to let you know, in verse 36 of the same chapter, Jesus interprets this parable for us, so we know we can't get it wrong, okay? And he says in verse 36 that the field is the world and that the seed that is good, that is sown, is the sons of the kingdom. So, Immediately you see that this is just like the first two parables, the parable of the sower and the parable of the seed, but it's also different because in the sower and the seed, what was the seed? What did Jesus or what did God sow? Do you remember? The kingdom, right? So in the first two parables, when he sowed the seed, he was sowing the kingdom. In this parable, he's not sowing the kingdom, he's sowing the descendants of the kingdom or the sons of the kingdom or the children of God. Interestingly, even when Jesus tells the parable, he uses a different Greek word. He uses the word kalon sperma which doesn't mean the seed that creates plants. It means the seed that creates people, right? Offspring. So sometimes when we say seed, we mean plants. And sometimes when we say seed, we mean like the seed of the woman or the seed of Abraham, right? We mean, we mean the offspring. So Jesus even, I think this is fascinating, he even uses a different Greek word when he starts this parable. He says he plants sperma into the ground to produce children, sons of God, sons of the kingdom. Okay, so while he plants those good sons, verse 26, his men, after they planted it, they went to sleep. <laughs> Just like last week's parable. You plant the seed, and all you do is you go to sleep. You cook, you clean, you read books, you sleep. It's all going to happen by itself. You don't know how it happens. It just happens. The kingdom is growing. We don't know, but it does. So they go to sleep. And while they were sleeping, there's a twist. There's some drama that happens in this parable. An enemy came. Boom, boom, boom. And he sowed weeds among the wheat. It's interesting, isn't it? When Jesus interprets the parable, he says that the enemy is the devil and the weeds are the sons of the devil. Okay, so track with me on this. The good seed are the sons of God or the sons of the kingdom. The bad seed or the um, evil, you know, the sons of the, the weeds are the sons of the devil. And all of a sudden, I'm getting a little spooked out. Because Jesus just flat out said, we live in a world that has a devil. <laughs> Try to explain that to your kids. And we live in a world who that devil planted bad people to live among us. It just seems like a movie, doesn't it? The, good, the black and the white, the good and the evil, the, the, the demonic and the angelic, all living, you know, I could see lots of movies being made of this. But wait a minute, why did I say us? Did you notice I said that? There's evil living among us. Why do I naturally assume that I'm the good seed? <laughs> Why do we naturally assume we're the good seed and there's evil seed living among us? How do we know if we're good or if we're evil? Have you ever thought about that? In fact, if I can show you something interesting, really fascinating to me, the word for weed 
Jesus uses a particular, very different word that you would normally use for weed. He uses a particularly different Greek word, which is translated as darnell. Anyone know what darnell is? Anyone? Of course you don't, because we live in suburbia. We don't live on a farm. Darnell, well, since we don't know what it is, let's just go to Wikipedia, right? That's what we do when we don't know what something is. Wikipedia says this, darnell usually grows in the same zone, production zone, as wheat, and it is considered a weed. Okay, we got that. And the similarity between these two plants is so great that in some regions, darnell is referred to as false wheat, or the article continues to say poisoned wheat. So darnell looks very much like wheat, and so much so that people call it false or poison wheat. Fascinatingly, if you read the Wikipedia article, it then quotes Matthew 13, our passage. I took the liberty, hope you don't mind, of spending an hour looking for photos of Darnell. Here on the left is wheat, and on the right is Darnell. And you'll notice they look a lot alike. And as a city boy, I wouldn't know the difference. If I saw Darnell, I'd say, hey, look, there's some wheat. <laughs> In fact, the article that talks about what Darnell is says that when they're growing, the shoot, the stem, the stalk, the leaf, they look exactly the same. The only way you can tell them apart is to wait until they produce fruit. Then you can kind of see the difference. Isn't that interesting? So what does that tell us about our parable? Good and evil look a lot alike. In fact, evil is just a counterfeit of good. And you can't tell the difference. And wow, that's interesting, isn't it? So how do we know if we're the good ones or we're the bad ones? And how many times do you hear people talking about, even within the church, there's counterfeit Christians, right? We're all just among each other and it's, we look the same. How do we know? And here's what it occurs to me, is that we, tell me if I'm wrong. As Christians, we have a fascination with trying to determine who's in and who's out. Don't we? Well, in order to be saved, you must X, Y, and Z, and you can never do that. You can never watch Modern Family, right? Or you're not a Christian. Um, you know? <laughs> Don't we do that? We do. In fact, the first parable that Jesus told here in Matthew was the parable of the sower, and remember last couple weeks ago when we covered that parable, I mentioned that Jesus is essentially telling us, don't play that game. Yes, when, when the seed lands and the bird takes it, obviously they're going to hell. And when the seed grows and produces fruit, obviously they're going to heaven. But what about the people who received it with joy, but then the sun scorched it, or they received it and they grew, but then the worries of the world distracted them? Do they go to hell? How do you know? It seems to me like, and people argue about that. And the thing is, is that we love to play that game. And when we play that game, where are we? We're always on the outside looking in saying, look, we're going, but you, you might be Darnell. <laughs> you look like me, but you ain't like me because you listen to rap, right? It's very interesting. One scholar said this, Jesus perhaps told this parable right after that parable in Matthew to tell us, don't play that game because you can't tell. You just can't, you'll never know which is good and which is evil. They look exactly the same. In fact, they look so much the same, you can't pull them until the fruit comes. So don't play that game. So the evil, verse 25, one, sowed the weed, and then he went away. Just like the farmer sows the seed and goes to bed, let God do the rest. The evil one, I find this fascinating, sows the weeds, and does he stick around, spying it out? No, is it going to work? Did my evil plan work? Is someone going to try to thwart my... No, the devil doesn't have to do that, does he? He knows it's going to work. It always works. You throw your evil in the world, and then it's going to take root. You don't have to worry about it. Isn't it true? In fact, evil doesn't have to do anything to convert good to evil. 
That's not what's happening here, right? The weeds aren't changing the wheat in any way at all. The only thing the weeds are doing are distracting the wheat or inconveniencing the wheat. So the evil one, all he has to do, he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to turn you into a bad person. Oh, I made him, you know, look at that website. Oh, I made him have an affair, right? The evil one just has to throw things in your path, and you'll do the rest. You will. You'll get, have you ever read Screwtape Letters? Anyone? C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, if you haven't read it, it's a, it's a fictional book, it's a fun read, and it's about little demons talking to other little demons on how they distract Christians, and it's never, get them to kill someone. <laughs> it's, just get them to think this or to get distracted by this, and it's interesting. The evil, evil doesn't have to do anything to hurt you, it just has to distract you, and then you produce evil all on your own because we're so much alike. I think it's interesting, very interesting. Verse 26, so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to them, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? I think it's very interesting that the first question the servants of the farm ask is not, what are we supposed to do, but didn't you sow good seed? Why is there bad seed? Why are there weeds? It's the age-old philosophical question, isn't it? Why is there evil in the world? If you're so good and you sold good seed, then why is there bad in the world? Why is the world so bad? Why is the field so bad? They're asking a philosophical question, not, uh-oh, what do we do? How do we fix this? Their first question is, is what's up with that? <laughs> why is there evil in the world? We talked about this just last, or our last series on the Hard to Swallow series, Why is there evil in the world? What has 2,000 years of wrestling with that question gotten us? To be honest with you, I don't even remember the answer we gave six months ago or six weeks ago. Do you, anyone? No, because you know why? It wasn't good enough, was it? <laughs> Whatever answer I preached from this little pulpit about this is why there's evil in the world, no one here remembers it because it wasn't good enough. The answers are never good enough, are they? Well, because of free will. Sure, yeah, but why? If God is so good, why can't he just get rid of the weeds? And Jesus, in this parable, answers this age-old philosophical question. Do you notice it? He answers it, and you know what? We're not going to like his answer. It's not good enough. And here's his answer. He said to them, an enemy has done this. Wait a minute, that's the answer to the age-old question? Why is there evil in the world? Because you have an enemy? And because the enemy put the evil there? Essentially, you're saying there's evil in the world because there's evil in the world? <laughs> That doesn't really answer my question, God. But Jesus answered it right then and there, 2,000 years ago. We needed an answer. He gave it to us. And if I could go so far, think about this for a second with me. His answer is actually, it gets worse, okay? His answer is worse than there's evil because there's evil. It actually gets worser because he says there's evil because there's evil, and the worst part of that is it looks a lot like you. <laughs> oh, well, let's move on. We don't, want to, we don't want to dwell there, do we? No. Verse 28. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them, rip them out? Which seems like the obvious thing to do, right? We're people of, we're, we're, get, or, we're get or done kind of people, aren't we? Um, there's weeds out there, let's get them out. In fact, logically speaking, it would make no sense not to get them out. Leave the weeds there would be a bad idea for any farmer. In fact, if you did that, two things would happen for sure. One is the weeds would grow up and begin to choke out the, the wheat, 
or at least that's what Jesus said in the last parable, right? If you throw the seed amongst the, wheat, the weeds, it chokes it out. But the second thing that will for sure happen is you'll guarantee a bumper crop of unwanted weeds next year. Isn't that true? I've got a lawn, and there are weeds in that lawn. Like, I don't know what they're called. They're not Darnell, but they're like crabgrass or whatever. Those things with the little white things that you blow on it, and then you spread the seed all over the place. Dandelions, which is very close to Darnell, but dandelions. My kids pick them up and blow them, and you know what I'm thinking when they're blowing them? No! You know, stop the sperma, you know what I mean, from going into the earth, because next year, if you don't get rid of them, you're just going to have more. I've learned this the hard way. I'm a, I'm a newbie at lawns because I'm from Texas and we don't have trees. We don't have grass, really. But here in Missouri, we've got lots of trees, lots of grass. And I've noticed that if you don't get rid of the weeds this year, next year they'll be back, but not two times more, but like 20 times more. <laughs> next thing you know, you don't even have a lawn. You just have a weed pit. All right, so Jesus says to them, no. No, don't pull the weeds. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. And here's our key verse. Let both grow together until the harvest. Jesus says good and evil look so much alike that you can't just reach in and grab one because you don't know. And you could grab the wrong thing. No, no, no. Just let good and evil grow together. Just let it all go. Let it go. Let it go. What do we do with that? I mean, here's the, that's, that's the question I want to discuss tonight. As a church, what are we supposed to do with that? Let good and evil grow together? And then the eschaton, the end times when the harvest comes, then you'll take care of it? What is that? What are we supposed to hear? What are we supposed to do? So that would be a good discussion question, don't you think? What does it mean for us today, and what are we supposed to do with that? I want to hear what you have to say. So let's talk about that for three minutes. Well, I think essentially Jesus is saying, as Capon says this, all they will accomplish by their frantic pulling out of the weeds is the tearing up of the wheat right along with them. That's obvious. Worse yet... Since good and evil in this world commonly inhabit not only the same field, but even the same individual human being. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Am I good seed or bad seed? By the way, that whole sperma thing is where that came from. You know, he's good seed, he's bad seed. It means, you know, are you, do you have good fruit or bad fruit? Do you produce that kind of thing in your life? The only result of that kind of an effort, a truly dedicated campaign to get rid of evil, will be the abolition of literally everybody. That puts things into perspective just a little bit. If you want to get rid of evil, then kill them all. Nuke them. Flood them. Remember last week we mentioned this. God doesn't knock his enemies' heads together, destroy them all, puts them under a flat rock. He doesn't use right-handed power. He uses left-handed power. He works in a hidden mystery. God works in mysterious ways. So instead of killing his enemies, Jesus says, I'll let you kill me. Because... <laughs> In some way, you've got to destroy the evil, but Jesus is clearly saying in this parable, you can't just reach out and destroy the evil. So you've got to do something that's actually more powerful than power. It's a left-handed power. It's a hidden thing. You've got to do something different. What is Jesus going to do to do that? Capon goes on to say, goodness itself, in other words, if it is sufficiently committed to plausible, right-handed, strong-arm methods, will in the very name of goodness do all and more than evil ever had in mind. When we, get the, when we take the strong, right-handed approach, well, we're going to kill them bad guys. Then, and Jesus is saying, no, you can't do that. Don't do that. Jesus is saying, I'm doing left-handed things. If my people then go out and do right-handed things, all they're going to do is look more evil. Step back for a little bit and, and just nod if you agree with me. How often has the church done just that? 
where we've tried to like destroy the homosexuals, you know, whatever. We just tried to beat them up. And then in the end, I don't necessarily think the media has to try too hard to make us look bad. We look bad, don't we? We look just like evil. I'm not saying we should condone the behavior, but I'm saying that our behavior isn't condonable either. Someone say, what, what, or amen if you agree. All right, good. Well, let's move on to the parable before I start preaching on a soapbox. Jesus says, at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. We love that part of the story, don't we? But gather the weed into my barn. I know what you're thinking, Alex. Wait a minute. You just said God doesn't use right-handed power. He uses left-handed power. That sounds kind of like right-handed power to me. Are you saying that God doesn't use right-handed power? No, I, I didn't say that. Yes, he is going to use right-handed power, but this is when? At the harvest, at the eschaton, at the end of things, at the end of the world as we know it. Now, currently, in the parentheses, in the parenthetical, it's called the church age or the age of grace. God is using left-handed, hidden, mysterious power. He's not destroying his enemies. And you know this to be true, right? How, many, how much evil have you gotten away with? <laughs> have you ever sinned and you just knew God was going to get you, like today? Or this week, I have. I've sinned. I knew it. God, I'm going to do this. Just turn away. I got to, okay? And then I just assumed the next day my car was going to explode with me in it. <laughs> and didn't. And you know what happens, right? You get the sense of, I got away with it. <laughs> and then you do it again. So Jesus now, let's just get away with it. He now works in hidden, mysterious ways. But you can bet your bottom dollar, don't take God's grace and mercy, don't take advantage of it, because one day... It'll be the end. We will move into a new period of time where he will use his arm. God is just, and he will destroy the wicked, and he will burn, you know, the weeds. But what I think is interesting is that we just love that part of the story. And I don't know if you noticed or not, but the whole story is like six or seven verses long, and that burning part is only not even a full verse. It's a part of a verse at the end. It's like Jesus saying, look, for now, let them grow together. And then he's saying, but don't worry about it. In the last days, I got it, okay? I don't need you to do anything. I'm going to take care of it. I will. Justice will be mine, says the Lord. So stay off. But then we, we're like, ooh, burn them, fire, brimstone. We're like, we got this bloodthirsty end of the world addiction. Don't we not? Do we not? How many books left behind? <laughs> you know they're actually remaking the movie Left Behind because the first one was so horrible. They're remaking another one with uh, Dennis. No, wait, who's... Nicholas Cage, yeah. And, 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 you, and you poor guy, you know. And, and, and we're going to go see it, aren't we? We are, because we love that stuff. We love it that the good guys are going to win and the bad guys are going to get theirs. But can I just remind us, I don't think that's the point of this parable. I think Jesus is saying, don't you worry about it, I got it. But the point of the parable is, let the weeds grow until the harvest. Capon says this, the human race is hooked on eschatology, end of the world stuff. Give us one drag on it, and we proceed to party away our whole forgiven life. <laughs> Think about this. We are forgiven, right? Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me of my wickedness. But you give us one drag on, into the world, destroy and bloodthirsty, kill them all. And we get, woo, yeah, we're going to kill the bad guys. And we completely forget that we have a forgiven life with fantasies about a final score settling session that none of us, if it wasn't for that forgiveness, could possibly survive. I don't know about you, but when I were left behind series... There was a part of me that says, yeah, finally the bad guy's going to see that we were right. 
But then every night when I lay my head to bed, my thought was like, how do I know that I'm right? <laughs> you know what I mean? And raise your hand if you're that right, right? Am I, are they going to take me? Am my clothes going to be left? In case of rapture, can I have your car, you know? All right, so let me wrap it back down. Let me bring it to a close. What do we do if the thrust and the theme of this is let both grow together? What are we supposed to do with it? I want to I, I give what I think is an unbelievable, remarkable answer. As I was studying this, I was floored by it. I hope you will be too. What I need to do is unpack what this word let means in Greek. In, in the ESV, it says let both grow together. In other translations, it might say um, allow both to grow together. And then even other translations, it will say suffer, suffer both to grow together. But the remarkable, fascinating thing is that that word let, allow, suffer is one Greek word, and it's the Greek word afit. I'm from Texas. I don't really know Greek. I'm pretending, you know, I, I, have, I have a commentary, okay? So this is the word afit. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you. Or let me, let me let Capen tell you. Capen says this, but then comes the most remarkable word in the whole parable, afit, both to grow together until the harvest. And then he says this, simply to pause over this statement is not enough. We can't roll the stop sign, okay? Don't just pause over it. We have got to stop. It calls for a full-scale application of the brakes, a complete parking of the theological car, if you will, in order to take in this incredibly rich landscape. Well, what is it? Please tell. Stop. I want you to back the truck up and think about this. He said, afit. What does afit mean? Well, if you look it up in a concordance or a lexicon, this is what you'll see. The word comes from the word afilmai, and it could mean to permit, to allow, not to hinder, to let it go, to give up a debt, which we know theologically means to forgive or to remit sin. So the word let the weeds grow together with the wheat could also be allow them to grow, permit, give them permission to grow, forgive them as they grow, give up their debt as they grow. Well, what does that mean? I don't, you might not like what it means. Capen explains it in a way that I thought was fascinating. We don't really hear it in our English words so much, but if you were a Greek speaker in the early church, you would have, it would have jumped off the page. He tells the story, it goes like this. Imagine you were early Christian, first church, you went to someone's house for worship, Saturday night, whatever. You go to church. And um, I shouldn't have said that. They didn't go to church. You go to worship. And while you're there, they're probably going to read the Lord's Prayer, right? And they're going to take the Lord's Supper. And so while they're reading the Lord's Prayer, they might have read it in the Greek Bible, and it would have said, forgive us our debts, as we have also aphiamen our debtors, right? Afeet our debts, as we aphiamen our debtors. And then they would take communion, and then maybe there would be a reading of Scripture that day. And if the reading of Scripture that day was Matthew 13, surely they would have noticed when Jesus says, a feet them to grow together, they would have caught the cosmic pun, if you will, that God is forgiving. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us probably in a not-so-comfortable place, to be honest. Because you might be thinking, are you saying that God is allowing evil to grow with good? And that God is forgiving evil? Is that what you're saying? Well, doesn't he? I mean, doesn't God forgive us of evil? I mean, don't get me wrong, he's just. 
right? Justice, he will, there will don't, don't worry, there will be a fire, okay? There will be a big bonfire. But what do you really want? Justice or mercy? What do you want? I mean, because you look so much like it, don't you? I don't know about you, but I'm begging for mercy, please. Mercy, please. So how do you know if you're the good seed or the bad seed? If you're a good guy or a bad guy, as my son would like to say. Are you a good guy, daddy, or a bad guy, daddy? Well, I think I'm a good guy, but sometimes I can get pretty mad, can't I? Yes, you can. <laughs> my son actually called me a bad guy the other day because I yelled at him, you're being a bad guy. How do we know if we're the good guy or the bad guy? How do we know if we're the good seed or the bad seed? Because here, here's what happens. At the end of another parable, we're stuck with this place of asking ourselves, are we the good seed or the bad seed? And remember, they look so much alike. And we live in a church that we're even talking about it in the church. Within the church, there are nominal counterfeit Christians. And so we've got these games that we play in order to be a true believer You've got to tithe. You've never be a true believer. You've got to go on a mission trip. In order to be a true believer, you've got to have a quiet time every morning and listen to 99.1 only, right? Don't we do that? And if you're not, and if you, do, and if you don't do these things, or if you do those, you're not a true... Tell me if I'm right. And when we play that game, when we play that comparison game, doesn't it feel like comparing your three-year-old's birthday party to the perfect Pinterest party you saw on Pinterest? Makes you feel pretty low, doesn't it? Makes you feel like, well, I guess I'm not ever going to throw a party because I suck at parties. I'm right, aren't I? When we start to compare ourselves, a true believer, you know, uses quiet time and journals about it with the King James Version only, we start to feel, well, maybe I, I am so far not, I'm a bad seed. <laughs> how do we know if we're the good seed or the bad seed? Can I tell you how? The answer is real easy. It's the simplest answer. It's the same answer we give every time we answer that question. Although I do realize it sounds a little different. It's talking about seeds, but it's this. The good seed are those who, who lean on who trust in the effeat of God, the forgiveness of God. You see, God in this parenthetical time is the age of grace, and he's saying, I forgive all evil and all sin. You know what? My death on the cross made it possible for me to forgive all evil and all sin. If you are a true believer, you will trust in that forgiveness, and you will be forgiven. If you're a counterfeit for forgiver, if counterfeit believer, you will take the forgiveness, thank you very much, but you won't trust in it. Does that make sense? So evil is forgiven, but they run with it anyway. Good is forgiven, and they say, I'm trusting in that. I'm trusting in that. I need that. Thank you for that. The only way to know if you're a true believer is if you're trusting in forgiveness, because in the end, you are good and bad. And the only way that you'll be to know that you're not the bad seed is to trust in his forgiveness. Let me illustrate it, and then I'll close. Imagine the scene of Jesus' death. He's carrying his cross up that hill. People are spitting at him and hurling insults at him. Or to take it even further, some are hammering nails into his flesh, beating him. Or if I can even take it even further than that, some of the men there were the men who captured him and dragged him there and forced Pilate to crucify him. And when you look at that scene, as you see it at Easter time, are all those bad seeds? You ever wonder that? Are there any good seeds standing there watching him die? And how do you know? I mean, just because the man put the nail in him, is, that, is he the bad seed? One of them even got converted, didn't he? You don't know, do you? It's not an easy question to answer. You want to say, yes, in one of these days, God's going to burn them in a fire. 
But that's it. what's interesting to me is the way Jesus responds. He says, Father, our feet, forgive them. We're in the age of grace where God is full of love and kindness and mercy. He is patient and long-suffering, slow to anger and abounding in love and mercy. So forgive them. They don't know. So what's the, what's, how can I end it? Might I end it by encouraging you, by challenging you, by pleading with you to receive his forgiveness while it's still being offered? Because there will be a day when it won't. The harvest will come. The end of the world. Good guys, bad guys. Burning in fire and barns. But right now, a feat them to grow together. Everyone can be forgiven. Everyone's forgiven. All you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Will you accept his forgiveness while the time is still offering it? Because you don't want to wait. In fact, Jesus says don't wait. In Luke chapter 9, he says you can't put God's kingdom off till tomorrow. Seize the day. Let's pray. Father, as we partake of communion, as we break this bread, as we drink of this cup together as one community, I pray, Lord, that you will speak into our hearts two things. First, an unbelievable amount of longing to worship you because you are a God of love and mercy and kindness who forgives evil, even ours. Then I also pray that as we lean on that forgiveness and as we uh, trust in that forgiveness and as we break the bread and take the cup and and speak, Lord, thank you for this forgiveness, that you would create us into the kinds of people who would seek first your kingdom while we are yet on this earth. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.